Well, thank you. Hey, Will. Uh, We're doing, actually, our Blog Talk Radio weekly show in front of a live audience. Yeah, and we better introduce ourselves for the listeners on air. I am Will Wilkinson, and this is Thriving in Business and Life. And I'm Christopher Harding, and as we mentioned, we're at Bloomsbury Books in lovely downtown Ashland, Oregon, and we're going to do a review of our own book. Exactly, as it was being introduced, (laughs) as, uh, as Leela was introducing it and describing what's in it, I thought... That's the kind of book I'd like to read. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we read it multiple times in the process of, of writing. And found it, so. some typos. <laughs> there still are some, I'm sure. They but, haven't uh, changed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so one of the things that, that really we wanted to talk about is why did we do this? Uh, we had the opportunity to pass along a legacy of this, the many things that we learned from some wonderful mentors in our life. And what we've learned in working with people, you've been all around the world, I've been all around the world, we've been really blessed in so many ways, and so we wanted to share the wisdom we'd been able to gain with uh, people who didn't necessarily have to attend a workshop or a seminar or a corporate coaching session to get that information. Well, I think one of the really interesting things about the, the genesis of the book and the process of getting it from thought to print is that we, without ever talking about it, use the lean approach. A lot of our listeners are aware of the lean startup, lean management, where you test things early on. You don't just labor away forever are you, to make... Are you referring to the fact that we got about two-thirds of the way through and threw it all out and started exactly. over? Exactly. Yeah, thanks for putting it so tactfully. Yeah, we made what they call a pivot. Uh, we developed a lot of material relative to a theme we were very enthusiastic about, and I remember the moment sitting in your living room... We looked at each other. I don't know who said it first, but we realized we needed to make a dramatic change, as dramatic as you can make. And we completely, I won't say threw out, but abandoned our material and started over, basically. Well, and this is where it came down to the whole idea. We realized what we wanted to center the book around was this whole notion of thriving. Right. And Leela mentioned it a little bit, but the, that distinction between thriving and surviving. So... Describe surviving from your standpoint. What is it like if a culture or a person or a team is just surviving? Struggle. And all of us know that experience of struggling to just make it through the day. There's songs about it. Whatever gets you through the night. Keeping your head above water. There's a lot of expressions that describe the experience of barely making it. Today, there's a lot of financial pressure for people who are living paycheck to paycheck, barely surviving. So that's the survive side of the scale. Why don't you give us the contrast? What's thriving? Well, so one of the things I want to mention about surviving, too, is surviving is a state of mind. Right. And, and, hey, surviving is better than, than not, mm-hmm. right? I mean, let's be clear better about that. Better than failing to survive. Right? <laughs> yeah. But thriving is, is a state of mind that isn't dependent on circumstances. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that, that we really want to you know, make note of, that, yeah, sometimes uh, prosperity and abundance are things that, that flow out of a surviving state of mind. But we can thrive, if, if we have a mind to and a heart to, in any circumstance. Anybody who's read Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning understands that Gosh, in the most dire of circumstances, he figured out how to thrive in a concentration camp. Yeah, and there's so many stories of dire circumstances drawing out from people courage and innovation, ingenuity, strength, courage that wasn't there beforehand. I know it's become a cliche, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger, 
It's kind of true. Yeah. You know, it's kind of true. Well, and one of the things we looked at in the book is we suddenly made this shift over from the original track we were on to thriving. I, was... I wept that night. <laughs> I just want to let you know. I love that old theme, and I've never let it go. I'm still plotting to get it into our next book. <laughs> well, as we, as we really started to think about it, we thought, well, what are the elements that identify a thriving culture? Mm-hmm. And one of the things we came up with, one of the first things we really looked at, is that as human beings, we're all innate storytellers. We make stuff up all the time. You know, you just think about it. Something happens, and your mind immediately starts making up a story about it. Right. Well, this is one, I think it's the first section in the book on storytelling, and this was yours. We kind of split up the writing. About half the chapters are Chris's, half are mine. But one of the pieces of feedback we get from readers that we cherish the most is they can't tell. Well, it's because we we also rewrote each other's chapters. Yeah, right. (laughs) We did, mercilessly. But... uh, well, yeah, so the, the, the power of story, I, I think the thing that fascinated us, Will and I have both been in the film and television industry before, and so story was something we were very familiar with. And we started to realize that how we tell stories and what story we make up has a tremendous impact on our heart and our mind and how we approach things. I was with, as you know, a group of Latin American leaders yesterday in Miami who had gathered there, and they were going through a real struggle with some things that they were challenged with. And we started talking about, what's the story you're making up about this? There are some facts that are Mm -hmm. happening. What are you making those facts mean about you, about others, about the situation? And what if you decided to make up a different story about those same facts? Right. I I still remember, I don't remember who it was, but someone we were talking with, and you introduced this basic concept, I remember their jaw dropping as they got it. And you put it very poetically, there's the facts, and then there's the stories we tell about those facts. Right. And whoever this was got it. They, They grokked it that, wow, this isn't really the way it is. This is the way it is for me because of the story I'm telling about it, and you're probably telling a totally different story, our stories are different. Well, and, and then, so you start to say, not only we tell stories, but we, we give meaning to things. Some people say we're like meaning-making machines. And so the real question is, what, is the, what are you making this mean? Right. The, the book is peppered with stories, because we all love stories, so we put in a lot of anecdotes, and one it's an urban myth kind of story about three guys going to work in the morning, early in the morning. Remember this story? Yeah. <laughs> and they see a woman uh, in like a house coat, like at six in the morning, walking across the, the road. I think in the original story she was totally naked, but I cleaned it up for this audience. <laughs> so she's walking across the street, and one guy is horrified. He just thinks this is disgusting. He wants to call the police, indecent exposure. Another guy, uh, he thinks... Uh, it's uh, kind of terrific, and he's sort of looking at her and sizing her up. The other guy notices something the other two men missed. Her eyes are closed. She's sleepwalking. An ambient episode. Yeah. <laughs> so as the story goes, he went out, put his coat around her, and got her safely home. Three guys seeing the same thing each saw the same facts, but they each told a different story about what they saw. Well, and that's, that's what's going on all the time in life. And so since we are making up the story... What, what we suggest for people is become conscious of the story you're making up because you're the one making it up, right? Yeah. You're the one imposing the meaning. And ask yourself, where is that meaning? Where is that story leading me? Right. Is it leading me to a productive outcome? 
or is it leading me to stay admired in a problem? Well, and that kind of morphs into another chapter in the book on vision. There's a lot of material on there, and probably everybody here has done visioning work, setting intentions, and so forth, and we've developed our own model for that. But I, I had an experience, actually, I was in the hot tub with my wife the other night, and she was telling me a story, and it triggered me, whatever she said. Something got triggered, and I was ready. I, I had the thought, I was ready to kind of pile on and continue that story. And I stopped, and I had the distinct thought, well, I get to choose what story I grow. And instead of saying what I was going to say, which I'm pretty sure would have made her feel badly, actually, I said something entirely different and we had a wonderful evening, and it was very different. I think we created one of those alternate realities you and I were talking about earlier. Right, right. right. We split off, and so I came up with a little phrase for that. It's not in the book. From story to strategy. In other words, I abandoned the story that I was about to tell in favor of a strategy or a vision, because my vision for my marriage, for instance, is love. I want to have a loving relationship with my wife. I never want to say anything that would hurt her, Uh, deliberately or inadvertently. So I made a choice following the compass of my vision, and that's part of what we talk about in that chapter. Right, and and if if you start to think about vision from a standpoint, what are the values you have? What are the things that you're passionate about, that you really care about? And if we create our vision based on our values, it gives us a compass that really keeps us on track. when I first met Will, I'd done tons of visioning work, but he, he introduced me to a slightly different take on it that for me was really interesting. So why don't you share a little bit about <laughs> your vision process, the see it, say it, and the feel it part. Right. Well, I've explored this for years because I'm kind of systematic about things, as wild as I am. I like to get systems. I like to know why something works. And I never found a visioning system that worked dependably. Sometimes it would work and sometimes it wouldn't. So I've really been on a track for 20 years or so to try to figure out what would be a good system. So this system is different in a number of ways from what I've discovered before. For one, you don't look forward to what it is you want to create. You actually time travel past the event. For instance, Chris and I have already done this about tonight. We've already imagined ourselves taking our gear back to the office and reflecting on what a great night it was and how the audience were friendly and asked good questions. This is your cue. And uh, (laughs) that it was a thoroughly uh, fun and productive night. So we went past the event and looked back. So that's the first thing. And then to say it succinctly, we're reflecting on what a great, fun, productive evening it was. Well, and, and, and even more, this is the thing that I thought was so great. You get specific about it. We're on our way back to the office. The event has already taken place. And we're really feeling how grateful we are that everybody came and just how fun it was, how much fun we had for doing this and what a chance we got to really share the information that's been shared with us. And we sat there and kind of reveled in that feeling as if it had already happened. I sat in the chair on the left. Chris sat on the one over there. There wasn't much light, so I turned on another light. We could hear someone walking by outside. In other words, making it as vivid as possible to trick the subconscious into believing that it's already happened. But the secret sauce, and we, I think, use this term in the book, is the third part. First part is to say it, say the vision in words, that's for the conscious mind. Then see it, describe where you are as it's happening, reflecting on the success that's already occurred. And finally, 
to feel it? What does it feel like? Well, and this is one of the things where, because we do this a lot in corporate environments, uh, with engineers and with scientists and with people who are pretty left-brained, uh, they, you know, they, they can think about that and go, well, that sounds kind of touchy-feely, airy-fairy kind of a thing. Actually, this has been used in sports psychology for right. years. This visualization process is used by Olympic athletes. And it's because the brain has this really cool mechanism in there that they call the reticular activating system. I love it when he says that. It <laughs> kind of turns me on. <laughs> I have to be careful about when I say it. <laughs> but the reticular activating system actually looks to find evidence yeah. for what it believes to be true. And so if we can feel the reality of something having already happened, our brain, our subconscious, actually starts looking to create ways to bring that about. I had an experience with a client I was coaching a while back. She was a school teacher and was using this process to vision a panel that she was going to be on a few weeks in the future, and she was very good at doing this process. When you learn it, you can do it in like 10 seconds. Initially, it takes a few, uh, maybe a minute or two. Anyway, she called me for a session the day after the panel, and she was so excited she could hardly talk. She said three things happened of real note. First of all, the panel went great. It was how she'd envisioned it. It was successful. Uh, second, she felt exactly the way she'd imagined she would feel. She was able to feel it before the event. And that's what we advise with visioning. The important thing is to feel what it's going to feel like and then start feeling that before you ever get there, right? So that was the second thing. She said, man, it felt exactly like I'd imagined it would feel. But the third thing blew her mind. She had, and I, I don't like exaggerating, so I think it was three people who came up to her independently and said, what's up with you? You're glowing. And she said she had so much energy in her body. And so we talked about that, and I said, you know, that sounds like fusion. It sounds like energy meeting energy in that we created a quantum event where the past met the future in the present and there was an energetic component to it. So I think we wouldn't say this much in a corporate environment, I don't think. It's a little different in a bookstore in Ashland. But to create a crack in the conviction of the linear timeline, you introduced us to the term deep time. Right. which I love. Maybe you want to say a little bit about yeah, that. Yeah, so, so deep time, and actually, depending on who the audience is, we would have this conversation. Because I, I was telling Will earlier, yeah. I had a chance to have a conversation about these type of topics with Stephen Hawking, uh, Leonard Mladenov, who was the, the protege of Richard Feynman, the father of quantum mechanics, and uh, Christoph Galfard, who was Hawking's right-hand guy. I and never know if he's just making this all up or if he really did it. <laughs> no, there's, there's pictures on Facebook. <laughs> uh, now there are. <laughs> so the, 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 uh, the cool part of it was is they actually explained to me from a standpoint of quantum physics how that is a reality, what you just described. It's, it's the same thing as uh, you know, what Einstein referred to as uh, spooky action at a distance. Yeah. So the, the, the thing that's, that's great about that is there is a lot of science behind what we're talking about, and, and we've had our own experience that it works. But one of the things we found that infects our visions and can really sabotage them mm -hmm. and can also infect our stories is something that we've come to call the virus of bias. And so, what it is, almost sounds like the name of a rock band to me. You know? <laughs> well, kind of, I don't know what kind of rock band it'd be, but <laughs> not a good one. 
the uh, the uh, bias, you know, and I just had this conversation with the Latin American leaders yesterday. The the bias a bias is basically a limited perspective, right? It's a little slice of the whole that very often is not an accurate picture of the whole story. Well, give give us an example so people really understand that. Well, so so a bias that they were having is that the North American leaders that they were dealing with were unfair. Right. That was the bias they had. And so I started we started talking about that. I said, "Well, let's let's look at that. Is it all the leaders? Mm. A couple of leaders? Your experience of one leader?" Mm-hmm. And as we started to get down to it, it was really they were talking about a few people who had right. a lot of impact on their life. So they'd taken that experience with a few people and generalized it out into an overall bias that included everybody. Right. Yeah. Now the challenge is that for most of us those biases are unconscious. We're, we're operating as if those things were true, but we're doing it at an unconscious level. So, for example, uh, for me, one of my implicit biases was is that, uh, you know, people with a lot of authority were going to abuse their power. That was an unconscious bias I had based on my past. So my reticular activating system is looking for evidence of that. Mm. Right. So a boss could be doing 17 things that were great, and the one thing they did that was unfair, boy, the alarm bells went off for me, and I see, see? Yeah, see? so that sort of validates your expectation. Right. He's living up to your low vision of him. <laughs> that's right. right. And then we start to act out a story right. that's based on that slanted view. Well, and this is so universal. One of the examples that we use is, remember... If you're a parent, this may be happening now, but remember when you were a kid and you came home with your report card and you had an A and a couple of Bs and you had a D. What did your parents want to talk about? (laughs) The D, right? So that's the bias, to look for what's wrong. And I I love the phrase you uh, introduced to the book and you use this, is to catch people doing something right. Yeah. Well, and, and part, of, part of undoing a bias cycle is to actually consciously look to see if you can disprove your own bias. Mm-hmm. So you start looking for evidence to the contrary. Now, why would you do that? You do that because when we're operating out of a bias, number one, it limits our thinking. We start becoming problem-focused instead of solution-focused. And literally, when you look at the endocrine system and how the brain chemicals and body chemicals work, they actually go into a fight, flight, freeze, or faint state. And in that state of mind, the highest levels of our brain actually shut down. And what they've shown through myriad of, of, of research studies now is that we actually become dumber. Yeah, and brain blind. <laughs> and brain blind. Yeah, that's a term we use in their brain blindness. And I'll tell you a little story because it won't be as embarrassing as if you told it. But Chris uh, tells a story in there about losing his keys and looking everywhere to find his car keys. And he can't find them. And then I guess Leela came by and said they're right on the counter. Well, Chris couldn't see them because he never puts his keys on the counter. So his bias is that he would never put his keys on the counter so they can't be there. So even though they're there, he can't see them. Now, probably all of us have a little story like that. I've got one from my youth about my dad asking me to find nails in the garage. And I knew the minute he asked me that I'd go in the garage, I would look exactly where he told me to look, and I wouldn't be able to find the nails. And I wouldn't be able to find them because I was emotionally so terrified as a 10 or 11-year-old boy that I would fail my perfectionist dad. So I was blind to the nails. He would come in and say, well, they're right there. 
I go, how could I not see those? Well, so you start to say, how are the other ways that shows up? And part of it is you think about people you work with, people that you associate with in the community. Uh, if, if you're a leader, who am I going to hire? Who am I going to choose? If I'm blind to that person's capability and talents because I don't believe someone like that is capable, mm-hmm. they might have them plain as day. Yeah, yeah. And I won't see them. Well, and one thing Chris talks about in some of the companies that he consults with, they've actually installed what they call a bias monitor. And that's, that's, not pers- a, that's not a high-tech piece of equipment, by the way. Right. It's a person. Their job is to sit in the room and notice when bias shows up and report it to the group. Now, the, the beautiful way they do it is it's a rotating role, so everybody takes a role. And when they bring it up, they don't go, you just said a bias. You know, <laughs> they're not like all accusatory about it. Their, their whole role is to go, hey, wait a minute. I think we've allowed a bias to creep into our conversation. Right. In other words, they're taking joint ownership because right. implicit bias is something that exists within our cultural framework. And it's not bad. We're not demonizing bias because we all need bias. If you drove here tonight, you were biased to not see certain extraneous information that would have distracted you from driving. So biases are okay. It's just when they rear their head in a counterproductive way that we need to deal with them. Yeah, when they become unnecessarily or counterproductively limiting. So, you know, we were talking about vision just a minute ago, and one of the things you talk about that's another area of visioning for you is being able to make an assessment. So we create a wonderful vision. We've got the feeling. we've, We've set it in motion. Now... Part of taking an assessment is doing a reality check along the way because sometimes our vision might be two, three weeks, four yep. weeks out, a month right. out, whatever. So how, how could taking an assessment help me, especially even determine if I've got a bias at play? Well, for one thing, it's very practical to be realistic. Uh, I, there's a book I recommend uh, by Barbara Ehrenreich, Bright-Sided, How the Unrelenting Promotion of Positive Thinking Has Undermined America. It's just a scathing takedown of the whole New Age movement where all people do is just vision these wonderful utopian results and there's this idea, well, you don't want to feed your energy into the bad things because it will make them grow. Well, in some cases that may be true, but I'll tell you, if my roof is leaking, I want to put my attention on my leaking roof because I need to fix it before it destroys my home, right? So the idea of making the assessment is to value awareness of the way things are as much as the vision. So it sets up a dynamic of the vision on the one hand and the current reality on the other, being in some cases brutally honest about the way things are. Example, a person might be on the edge of divorce and they're trying to make their marriage work. And so their vision could be, well, I'm imagining my wife and I on the beach in Maui and we've repaired our relationship, we're deeply in love and blah, blah, blah. The current reality might be, we're going in to see the divorce lawyer tomorrow, and I think my wife hates me, and I think I hate her, and I feel like <laughs> and that's and that'll be a beep, I guess, right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, how does it feel? How does the current reality feel? To make that honest assessment and be unafraid to establish uh, the relationship <clears throat> between the two that Robert Fritz, in his book, uh, Path of Least Resistance, if you've read that, if you haven't, totally recommend it, calls dynamic uh, structural tension. The dynamic 
relationship of structural tension between the way things are and the way you would like them to be sets up an oscillation that generates energy. Well, and you, you give an example in the, in the book, and, and you carry a rubber band around with you, yeah. I think, to demonstrate this. But it's, it's that if you put a rubber band on these two fingers, on the index finger and the thumb, and you stretch it apart, you can only hold them apart for so long bef- right. between either the, the forefinger is going to go towards the thumb or the thumb towards the forefinger. So if you look at structural tension as being, let's say this is reality, and this is the vision. So the idea is is to focus enough on the vision while being in touch with, with reality, visiting reality, as you like to say, right. or is that it, it will pull reality towards the vision versus allowing my denial of reality to become so strong that eventually the vision collapses into the Yeah, the way reality. I like to say it is you live in the vision and you visit the current reality. And of course, for most people, it's the other way around. They live in the way things are. And sometimes if you suggest this kind of idea, they think you're meaning that you should deny the current reality, the opposite. Be totally aware of what's going on, but have your heart in the vision. Put your energy into the vision. Well, and let it inform you what you need to do about the current reality in order to have it move towards the vision, as opposed to pretending that things are already there. Looks like we've got about four minutes left here in the show, and then after the program we'll have another half hour for questions and answers here in beautiful downtown Ashland, Oregon. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And there's, there's, uh, there's a piece I wanted to, to have us explore uh, for this, this episode, so we're kind of doing a little bit of a summary. And that is a, a part that, that we really are big on, and that is are we willing to realize that we are the, you know, in a very real way, the author of our story. You know, I could say I'm the co-author, you know, if I, if I have a spiritual sense of it, I'm co-authoring it with God or my higher power. I'm co-authoring it with other people. I'm a primary actor in my own play. I'm, I'm the director of my day-to-day life. What that starts to set in motion is, am I willing to realize that I get to choose in every moment Right. what I make out of that moment. This whole notion of responsibility is a huge part of thriving. Well, and I love the story frame because it's so easy to follow. You're starring in your own life movie. And what kind of a movie is it? Is it a horror film? <laughs> is it a comedy? Is it a romance? Is it a drama? Is it a detective mystery? I think the best stories have a little bit of everything, don't they? And the characters are nuanced. There isn't just bad guys and good guys. There's real people. So I love this frame, and it's, it's so cool when a person gets that they are the author, they are 100% responsible for the story they make up about the facts that are happening. That's the breakthrough thriving moment. Well, yeah, and the, the notion that every day you get up. Now, some of you know that I have had, I think I would actually say the fortune of having died twice and been revived. So I really understand how amazing it is to be alive. So when I wake up in the morning, one of the first thoughts I have is, I'm alive. <laughs> like, oh, good, you know. And what I, I'm glad with, too, Chris. <laughs> I have to say. Thank you. Is the realization that every day is a new chapter in your life story. Mm-hmm. And you get to decide How's that chapter going to go? Now, all the events that happen, there's a lot of stuff that's going to come out of left field that you didn't expect. But what's the theme? What's the, you know, what's the theme of that chapter? Right, and like imagine getting out of bed and saying, I wonder what the scenes are going to be like today. 
to really see it theatrically like that. One thing I want to mention, because we're getting ready to wind up here, is we've had really great response on the book. Uh, it's making its way around the world in one way or another. One of the things readers have consistently said, and this is surprising and kind of confirming for us of a hunch we had, is that one of the most popular parts of the book is the summary we do at the end of each chapter, which is just one page, but it's got surviving on one side, thriving on the other, with like five or six bullet points. So you can see exactly, relative to the theme of each chapter, what would be the surviving experience versus what is the thriving experience. And when you see it like that, it's like kind of impossible to imagine ever choosing on the, the surviving side. Yeah, it's like, what, why would I do that, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, if you could have chocolate ice cream, why would you ever get vanilla? Well, I don't know. <laughs> some, <laughs> some, some people like vanilla. <laughs> I have a bias about that, I think. <laughs> well, as, as we're winding down here, uh, for our listeners, what we want to ask you is if you've got uh, you know, comments or stories, uh, please write us at thrivinginbusinessandlife at gmail.com. And I'm Christopher Harding. And I am Will Wilkinson. You've been listening to Thriving in Business and Life. Today's show has been broadcast from the Bloomsbury Bookstore in beautiful downtown Ashland. And thank you to our live audience. Thank you all very much. Thank you.